Hello, I'm Nigella Lawson and these are my seasonal sound bites. Three podcasts in celebration of festive cooking produced in collaboration with my publishers Vintage. Now, I make no secret of the fact that Christmas lunch is my favourite meal in the world. As I've often said, I wallow in it and relish it. It's an enthusiasm that I appear to have inherited. My great-grandmother loved Christmas lunch so much, she made a second one each Midsummer's Day. While this is, admittedly, high-stakes cooking compared to your average lunch, I really believe that the stress should never outweigh the pleasure. Home cooking is the real heart of Christmas, and home cooking needn't ever be perfect or fancy. For me, the cosy splendour of a full festive table, and even better, the company of those sitting around it, always just about outweighs those moments of rocketing blood pressure. Here, I talk through the before, during and after of my Christmas. The traditional classics the alternative recipes, and those dishes I return to year after year. And, of course, some tips for minimising stress levels and making sure the season of goodwill stays that way. Today I'm starting with a centrepiece, or at least my Christmas Day centrepiece, my spiced and super juicy roast turkey. I'm going to go straight to a reading from my book Nigella Christmas. I know I've done an awful lot of jumping up and down and shouting about my way of making sure your turkey is going to be sure fire succulent, but I don't think I can rest until I've converted every last person. This is feasible. You have only to try this method to be utterly convinced. It's not egomania that motivates me here. Indeed, I take no credit for an age-old tenderising technique. Brining is a discovery, not an invention. My evangelical zeal is more a combination of altruism, control freakery, if I'm honest, and enthusiastic faith. But then these factors are probably behind all kinds of evangelism and cookery books. Now, I won't go into the full details of how to brine a turkey now, but the recipe is obviously in Nigella Christmas as well as on my website. And I should say that brining is not difficult. I mean, really, it's essentially filling a big pan with water and then putting lots of salt, a bit of sugar and spices, and it's leaving the turkey submerged for a couple of days. I don't think anyone's going to have a fridge big enough for that. So since it does tend to be very, very cold at Christmas, you either have a cold place in the house or I just put it outside. If I put it outside, I cover it with a lid or with lots of foil, and I always used to put my son's skateboards on top so that you know, no foxes would come and eat the turkey. My Christmas lunch is presided over by the turkey with all the traditional trimmings. This is the lunch I ate as a child and the one I eat so much more joyfully now, and which, with occasional variations, I've written about before. But I am, I'd hope, a zealot rather than a bully, and I'm happy to include ideas for those of you who want something different for a change, or who cannot embrace or even meekly go along with my exuberant championing of the Christmas turkey. A Christmas goose is the most obvious alternative and a fabulous one, especially with pear and cranberry stuffing, but by all means consider a vast and gorgeous rib of beef with a seasonal port and stilton gravy. And I have a panoply of hams on offer too. Nigella, I want to see very clearly in my mind what Christmas Day is like at your house. So I'm assuming that the food is all served and it's on time, but what does it look like? Well, you assume wrongly then. Um, I have had many disasters at Christmas with ovens not working and having to take an oven tray with a turkey round to a friend's house. And quite recently, I did realise that I was getting so late, I had to phone everyone to say, could you just come a bit later? But that was also another oven malfunction. But now, luckily, um, I have a fully functioning kitchen, so that's great. Really, 
I think I do like Christmas decoration. I don't like everything to look too cluttered, but nevertheless, I do have a weakness for decoration. So I have some Christmas china that I bring out every year. Um, I can't remember who made it, but it's called Stockholm and it has deer and forests on it. That's all I can say. And it's very, very beautiful. It won't surprise anyone to know that I have more fairy lights hanging um, from the house and from windows. Anywhere I can, there's a twinkle. And I love that. I even like a Christmas tree that has just lights on it. You don't need to go in for baubles. I mean, I do. And I also, ever since my children were little, make edible decorations. When my children were little, God, it sounds so awful, I used to put a lot of pepper into the mixture so they wouldn't eat the <laughs> decoration straight off the tree. And that wasn't just because I was mean. It was also because I was always frightened they might hurt themselves pulling at the tree. Various years, I go for different themes. Years ago, I went a bit Scandi with, you know, painted wood. These days, I feel, you know, Scandi is everywhere. So I don't go in for that quite as much. But I do still have a few, you know, white painted deer, and they do look very pretty. But otherwise, I don't know, sometimes I've gone really, you know, off-piste. I don't know what got into me, but one year I decided to do a very dark Christmas with sort of dark greys and blacks, which I called Christmas in the Batcave. <laughs> and it wasn't a great success. It did look quite beautiful at night uh, because obviously if you have a lot of silver shining on it, it does look rather magnificent. But I, I don't know that I would do it again. But, you know, we make mistakes in life. That's fine. I did a Bollywood Christmas one year, by which I mean I had those wonderful bright pinks and oranges and that looked gorgeous. When I was younger... I think I went of a good taste a bit too much and had only white decorations, which I like, but I don't think that's necessary. This year I'm going copper. The fairy lights twinkling and a lot of copper are going to look beautiful. So I've already amassed many copper bits of decoration, including uh, some miniature cooking utensils to hang on the tree and copper baubles. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be very warm. And I should say also my Christmas table does look a bit messy because I often end up with many more people than I have chairs for. So I will say to someone, can you bring a couple of chairs? Or I find some stool that doesn't fit. So everyone is on sitting at a different level. And if I have to get an extra bit on a table, there's suddenly a bit where it goes up and down again. But it really doesn't matter. And actually, I think it makes it more relaxed. I'm not cooking an ambassadorial dinner. It's just friends around a table. If you're just having Christmas with a family, it's always good to have a friend there that your family don't know well enough to behave badly in front of. I think of it as a human shield. <laughs> now, I'm fully convinced uh, with your zealotry about the Christmas turkey. But I wonder if we could talk a bit about the sort of the accompaniments to go with that lunch. Are there things that you return to every year? I'm thinking about your your perfect roast potatoes, for example. Yes, it's fine. No, no, isn't it awful to call something perfect roast potatoes? I cook roast potatoes in the way that my mother and aunts did, which is I parboil them. I cut them in a particular way, I should say, first. And I was thrilled once in a book to be able to give... Um, a diagram. So I've always wanted to do a book saying see fig one. So I did a diagram of how I cut the potatoes. So if you imagine a potato being quite a long shape, I cut a central triangle so the potato is in three pieces with maximum edge for getting crisp. So I parboil these. And then instead of dredging with flour, that a lot of people do, I dredge them in semolina, which gives an extra crunch. It's perfect. So obviously that has to be there. Brussels sprouts with chestnuts, I couldn't have Christmas without. Like my mother, I put an awful lot of butter there. But I have branched out there, like adding pancetta. My mother wouldn't have done that. And it's fantastic. You can use bacon, obviously. And I think as well, lots of parsley. And I would say if by some accident you have overcooked the sprouts and they are starting to look in that rather depressing olive colour, 
all I would say is chop a lot of parsley and throw it on the top and then stir some through, throw more on the top. So that's definitely part of my Christmas lunch. I do a cranberry sauce that is a bit different, but sometimes what's nice is taking tradition and just doing it your way. And I call it redder than red cranberry sauce, and I add cherry brandy to it. At other years, I have had Cointreau, but you can also just use orange juice. So that has to be there. Bread sauce definitely has to be on the table. Gravy, and I should say that you cannot get everything out of the oven at the same time and on the stove. So I would say there are two things that have to be hot. Gravy and roast potatoes. I mean, I'm not saying the turkey must be cold, but it can stand quite a while, and then it will make carving easier too. But as long as your gravy is hot and your roast potatoes, preferably warm plates, it's very hard to find the room uh, to warm plates. But certainly, and I said the potatoes have to be hot, but for me, the next day, cold roast potatoes with some sea salt flakes on top are heavenly. So let's just stick to the gravy being hot. And I like red cabbage. I do do parsnips. I used to cook them in honey. My grandmother always cooked her parsnips in honey. But now I do maple syrup instead. And I find that better simply because parsnips are sweet and honey is very sweet. But there's something, smokiness about maple syrup. It's less sweet. So I use that instead and I don't peel the parsnips. If I can get rid of one step, I get rid of it. You can't have Christmas lunch without stuffing. And because I brine my turkey, I don't stuff the turkey. I cook it separately, which is easy. So I do a gingerbread stuffing. And I'm completely unembarrassed about the fact that I buy uh, a loaf of gingerbread. The gingerbread cake, not the biscuity sort. Gingerbread stuffing is wonderful. There's something almost medieval about it. Chestnut stuffing is also great. And again, I'm very happy to use a can of chestnut puree, but not the sweetened sort. And sometimes I've done a cornbread stuffing, which is very easy. And I, what I do with that is I do a sort of cornbread stuffing and then I let it get stale and I mix it with cranberries and various other deliciousness. Now, Nigella, as I've said, I'm fully signed up for turkey this year and you've mentioned some classical alternatives to that, like goose and beef. But uh, what recipes would you recommend for somebody who doesn't eat meat, for example? What I like to give to vegetarians, and it does look splendid, is a roast stuffed pumpkin. It's not that hard. I mean, the hardest thing is actually cutting the top off. Once you've done that or got someone else to do that, that's fine. And then I take out all the seeds and I stuff it with rice and dried fruits and spices. It's very hard to give exact measurements because all pumpkins are different. So what I do is I put a you know freezer bag inside the cavity of the pumpkin and half fill it with rice. And then I know exactly how much I need to cook in it. And that does look splendid. It is very much, you shall go to the ball. And with that, I serve a tomato and ginger sauce. And you cut this stuffed pumpkin a bit like a cake into slices. I think if you're going to cook a vegetarian Christmas or have a vegetarian option, it's very important that it doesn't look like a bolt-on. It really has to look magnificent and a real celebratory flourish. But if you haven't got room in your oven for stuffed pumpkin, then I do do a beetroot orzotto and a butternut orzotto. And an orzotto is really like a risotto made with barley. And it's much easier because you don't have to keep stirring and adding liquid slowly. And the golden and the red do look very beautiful. I suppose it also means changing the menu you're doing yourself if you are doing turkey with the trimmings. Because I always cook roast potatoes and goose fat. And obviously, that's a hostile act if you have vegetarians coming. And similarly, I wouldn't add pancetta to the Brussels sprouts. So it's really just sort of thinking a bit like that. I think also if you have got a lot of vegetarians eating, you could add more vegetables. I mean, a beautiful red salad made with radicchio 
for example, some pomegranate seeds on it, certainly would add another festive flourish and put more on the plate of a vegetarian. Although obviously non-vegetarians are more than welcome to eat it too, and I always do. We've spoken about some quite sort of traditional Christmas dishes there, yeah. and I wondered, have you got any globally inspired twists for people who want to be a bit more experimental? I don't know about globally inspired, but I certainly have an Italian-inspired Christmas lunch when I get a turkey breast you know, and cut it open. And for me, this is a big step because I'm a brown meat person. The turkey breast is opened out like a book. The stuffing of sausage meat and the marsala-steeped cranberries is put along as well, and then it's sort of closed again. And that really is rather... It's rather fabulous, and the stuffing means the turkey breast stays, you know, luscious. With my Italian turkey, or I should say my Italianate turkey, because it isn't really something I've noticed Italians cook, I make stuffing, then my panatelli stuffing squares. You know, you don't spoon it out, they're already cut into squares. And these are good alongside turkey or also as a canapé with drinks. Might cut them into slightly smaller squares for a canopy. And it really depends on how many people I've got because I do like roast Brussels sprouts, which then have some pecorino or parmesan and some rosemary on top. So they take a lot of room up in the oven. So you have to have a pretty modest Christmas lunch. You wouldn't want to be doing that for 35 people. So what I might make as well after that, rather than a traditional Christmas pudding, or I should be honest, alongside a traditional Christmas pudding, is something I call Italian Christmas pudding cake. The Italian Christmas pudding cake is very easy. My Italian Christmas pudding cake, which is really neither a pudding nor a cake, is very easy because you get some uh, panettone, or I like to use pandora, which is like panettone without the dried fruits. And whether I'm using panettone or pandora, I cut it into slices and I line a tin with it, a cake tin. And then I layer this up with a mascarpone mixture, a bit like tiramisu and it's slightly different flavourings. And at the top, I scatter it with pomegranate seeds and perhaps some marron glace and some pistachios, of course. You've got the white of the mascarpone, you've got the green of the pistachios and the red of the pomegranate seeds, a bit like the Italian flag. But it is really wonderful and it's very easy. I'm very influenced by Italian cooking, but I have to own up that my... Italian Christmas option is more inspired by Italy than exactly Italian. And with all of this amazing food, we're going to need something to drink. So what drinks are you serving on Christmas Day? I make a cocktail which is quite lethal called the poinsettia, which is dry fizzy wine but not doesn't have to be expensive, which has either Quanta or Garmani, any orange liqueur, and cranberry juice. Uh, obviously it looks not as red as a poinsettia, but it's a nod towards that Christmas plant. It's very easy because you can make it in jugs because you don't want to be fiddling about too much with small cocktails. I make that absolutely every year, but as I say, it's quite dangerous because it doesn't taste terribly alcoholic, but it is. I can testify to this, by the way. We have it every year and it's it, so good. It is so good, but it is such... It is difficult. Now, I also have a Christmas drink that I have myself if I'm doing a bit of wrapping up or you know, stocking filling, and I call it Santa's Little Helper. And it's not a huge drink, which is just as well, because it is... You know, a mixture of brandy, amaretto and an orange liqueur. I do it in a very small glass and knock it back, I'm fortified. I also have a drink I call Yule Mule, which is a bit of a twist on a Moscow Mule. And I make it with chilled vodka, cranberry juice, which is normally not in a mule, Angostura bitters or lime juice if you can't get the bitters, and ginger beer. It's rather fabulous, I must say. 
Uh, I'm very tempted by the your meal there, um, but I'm a, a big advocate for the Ponsetti too. But uh, do you have drinks for, for non-drinkers? Because there, there's bound to be someone. Oh, of course, of course I have drinks for non-drinkers. And I, actually, often I will drink a lot of that myself because I haven't got a very good head for alcohol. So I'm more of an eater than a drinker. And it's very, very simple. It's two parts pomegranate juice to one part ginger ale. And something about ginger that gives a wonderfully sort of festive scent, a seasonal scent, I should say. So I always have quite a bit of that. I mean, I think really also it looks a bit like the poinsettia, so you have to be a bit careful not to get them mixed up. But that's my regular non-alcoholic Christmas drink. Thank you for listening to my seasonal sound bites. I read today from my book Nigella Christmas. My latest, Simply Nigella, is out now. You can also find a selection of festive recipes at nigella.com. Look out for the next episode in my seasonal soundbite series, when I will be talking about everything that comes after Christmas lunch, from puddings to turkey sandwiches.